This episode of Fermented Adventure, the podcast, features Laura Fields of the Delaware Valley Fields Foundation. Laura has an incredible knowledge of farming, the history of spirit production in Pennsylvania, and the current state of the craft distilling industry. Be sure to check out the giveaway that is featured at the end of the podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe to be notified when the most recent episode has been uploaded. Also, feel free to reach out to Laura and let her know what you thought about the podcast. Cheers! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, craft spirit enthusiasts, and those interested in the intoxicating world of craft distilleries, cideries, meaderies, wineries, and the occasional foray into breweries. It's Rich Shane, and welcome to Fermented Adventure, the podcast, where we bring you the fascinating people that are making the mash, fermenting, distilling, bottling, pouring, and delivering to you some of the finest libations in the world. Before we get started, here are a few housekeeping items. Thank you for bringing the podcast into wherever you are and whatever you're doing. We truly are grateful that you've chosen to listen and make us part of your day. It would mean the world to us if you left a five-star review. This helps us climb in the rankings and it makes it easier for others to find us. Don't hesitate to leave us your comments as well. If the podcast didn't meet your expectations, tell us why. We're always striving to improve. You can find us at fermentedadventure.com. We are on Instagram and Facebook as Fermented Adventure. Email us at fermentedadventure at gmail.com. All right, FA Nation, let's meet our guests. Today I'm joined by Laura Fields of the Delaware Valley Fields Foundation. I've been excited to have Laura on the podcast since the American Whiskey Convention. Laura, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks. Laura, we've talked at length, and you and I have talked about how we can talk for hours and hours because you're so passionate (laughs) about grains and whiskey and farming. How did you come to develop that passion? What's your earliest history about farming and your uh, introduction to farming and grains and things like that? Well, I grew up in a somewhat large farming community in New Jersey. Um, My mother um, founded her own farm and her own nonprofit. I would say about 20 years ago, and she's always been very enthusiastic about educating the public. Uh, she has an educational center on her farm. It's called Flint Hill Farm. It's actually in Coopersburg, Pennsylvania, okay. about an hour away from where I am here in Newtown. But she invites school children onto her property and um, you know loves educating them about the animals and the farms around the community, and it really engaged my passion about farming, not only because of where I grew up, um, but also watching those communities kind of fall apart because of all of the construction and building of, you know, homes and developments and things like that, and watching all of the farmland, not only in my hometown in New Jersey, but in Pennsylvania as well, kind of crowd out all the farming communities. So it lit a passion in me to try and do what I could for farmers to keep them viable and you know keep the public interested which was always my mother's goal so um, one of the things I found though is that oftentimes especially with the farming community you find yourself kind of preaching to the choir as they say right so it's great when you're able to reach children but one of the things I noticed is that the adults that would come to the farm did not show the amount of enthusiasm that the children did um, largely because either they'd been told these things all too many times or they had already been reached um, whether they go to a farmer's market or um, you know are used to going to an organic grocery store whatever the case may be they kind of tuned it out so I found that 
I could kind of take what my mother has done and broaden it and bring the interest more to adults. And how did I do that? Through whiskey. Through the whiskey, yeah, right. There you go. Which is becoming a huge interest for adults all across the country right now. What was the one thing? I mean, it, it, you're an advocate yes. for the farming industry now, mm-hmm. but what was that one? Was there a moment for you that said, this is this is exactly what I want to do? What, what Was there an incidence, incidence that happened? What was it for you? Well, I've always loved nature and farms and just the salt of the earth. You know, I, I love down-to-earth people. I love the communities that form around farms, the roots that go deep in those communities. And here in Pennsylvania, so much. So it's just inspiring. The people themselves are inspiring. The land itself is inspiring. There's the history. I mean, I'm a huge history buff, and I love learning about the history of Pennsylvania. I have a book right now. Actually, I'm reading up on transportation and canals (laughs) and all these other things. My interests are very broad, but... Uh, the interest specifically in grain is based on that farming. Um, you know, what do you think of when you think of a farm? You know, you think of these vast fields of corn and uh, wheat and things like that. Pictures, anytime you see it on TV, it's these amber vast waves of amber grain. waves of grain, right? right? right. <laughs> kind of on the nose there, right? Yeah. <laughs> so those are actually the largest farms as well. I mean, vegetable farms and things like that tend to be a bit smaller, but the largest amount of land mass is taken up by grain production. So those are the farms that are losing all of their acreage. So how do you maintain farms being able to keep that acreage? You need to maintain their ability to make money off of it. And right now, this whiskey boom is creating a need and a desire for alternate grains, which allows farmers to make alternate money you know that's how they make their bones is uh by selling this large amount of grain and now instead of selling it to the elevator um for maybe not entirely what it's worth they can sell it directly to a distillery or to a brewery and make money so 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 this this kind of brings me back to a part mm -hmm. of that conversation that we had a number of months ago uh, about the impact of prohibition yes on pennsylvania and also how that dovetails into the projects that you're doing. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about more about the rye and things like that. But talk a little bit about the impact of, of prohibition and what it meant pre-prohibition to Pennsylvania and then post-prohibition and where we are today. Well, uh, prohibition, I mean, there, there's not enough that I could say about the damage that prohibition did to our grain manufacture or grain production here in Pennsylvania. Um, a lot of people kind of look past that, but... Um, part of the only reason that prohibition was even able to take place at all is because even though everybody was saying, you know, down with liquor, um, grain manufacturer or grain growers obviously didn't like that idea, and farmers were Coopers, kind of, transportation, I mean, like you're oh, talking yeah, about with canals right now. Absolutely. Right. Um, transportation, uh, the train industry, moving all that grain, um, the farmers, all the people that were employed in agriculture. I mean, the tentacles are, you know, vast and varied. So losing all of that meant losing jobs, losing money. Um, and as I was starting to say, it's not just... Um, jobs. It's about the impact that it meant to the grain farming. Yes. And, and what farmers needed to do once their need or their consumer um, it, it's really about the demand mm-hmm. for what they were growing for a lot of these farmers, right? Yes. 
Yes, the demand for the grain disappeared. Um, a lot of people don't realize that a great deal of the Great Depression and the reason that it even took place at all was because of the loss of all of these jobs, a loss of all of that income. One half of the nation's income was through taxes on alcohol. Right. And uh, the United States government thought that they could make up for it with the new income tax that was just implemented. Uh, that did not turn out to be the case. So prohibition is part of the reason that we had the Great Depression at all, a large part of it actually, which usually isn't talked about in the books, but it is accurate. Um, there's still this giant stigma that comes with whiskey um, and hard alcohol, which to me is kind of a silly concept because, you know, anyone that knows the realities are, and I'm sure that you've seen this in your travels, that, you know, a glass of beer equals um, an ounce of whiskey equals a glass of wine. I mean, they all are equal in their alcoholic content. Right. And to see one as having a stigma and not another is part of the propaganda that came out of the prohibition movement. And it became, you know, traditions, cultural mm-hmm. traditions. Absolutely. Um, you know, who was drinking beer. Right. And who was drinking whiskey. And it became about um, stigma cla- against particular stigma, people, classes, classes, classes and stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So, Big part of it. But one of the things that came out of prohibition mm-hmm. and one of the things that impacted Pennsylvania was from our discussion and understanding more the the extinction of certain grains. Absolutely. Well, you have to imagine that grain was grown specifically for a purpose. It was, you know, you're growing wheat to make to make into flour, to make into bread, to make into products. Um, rye was used not only for bread and, you know, food products, but the excess grain was used to make whiskey. Pennsylvania was the largest whiskey producer in the country, um, you know, during the colonial era and right up until the mid-1800s, really. So, you know, a lot of the transportation, again, that I'm reading about was moving that whiskey downriver, down the Monongahela, the Ohio River, and down in the Mississippi, and all the way down to New Orleans, and back up along the coast. It, it was a huge part of manufacture and um, the income of our state. So the loss of that was felt quite... <laughs> keenly in the state all across it. Was, it. It, was a, it was a deep impact. Now, yes. you're involved, the Delaware Valley Fields Foundation is involved in a number of different programs, mm-hmm. but talk about the, the Rose and Rye program or, or what you're doing with Rye and, and bringing that back and, and, and some of the things you're doing there. Yes, this is all having to do with the fact that farmers are looking for supplemental income. So, to improve local economies, these farmers are now considering growing alternate grains. Right now, the largest grains that are grown, um, and I'm sure people notice this just by driving through Lancaster and you know these rural places, is that it's mostly corn and soy because that's where the money is. You can make a good, uh, well, not a good living, but an adequate living off of growing soy and corn right. and rotating those crops, uh, which is not necessarily the best for the earth, which is why rye is often moved into... Um, the rotation of crops. Rye restores nitrogen to the soil that corn strips away. So it's a wonderful crop to grow, but most of the time in this state, it's only grown as a cover crop, which is basically... How do I... It, A cover crop is basically something that's planted in the fall um, to anchor the soil so you don't get as much erosion from the rains and the snows. Uh, It also keeps your land intact and begins to restore the nitrogen to the soil so that you can grow corn again. So um, they then either call it green manure and cycle it back into the earth with tilling or non-till where they just kind of kill that off early on and put their corn right in the 
ground. So it's a wonderful crop just in itself, uh, in the use that it's had across the state and across the country. Rye is wonderful, but when it's only being grown for a cover crop, it no longer draws the interest of anybody growing it for food because it's not, the, the flavor was never the first interest there. It was always what grows quickly, what are my cows like? <laughs> so you really only needed a couple different strains of rye, none of which were flavor forward. Okay. So in the 70s when rye, whiskey, production really dropped off and no one really was interested in large amounts of rye for any reason, those varietals went goodbye, you know? They, they didn't exist anymore and you can't get them anymore. Um, Rosen specifically was grown for flavor, for its quality. And um, in Pennsylvania, it was grown uh, Michter's actually Michter's distillery here in Pennsylvania was using it um, and when I found that out in my history research and looking into what grains were used by these old distilleries I found on old jugs you know it would say rose and rye was specifically used to make this high quality whiskey um, here in Pennsylvania actually that was in Schaeferstown Pennsylvania just north of Lidditz which I'm sure we'll talk about which we will talk about yes but this um, wonderful strain of rye no longer existed. It was gone. Uh, the only place where there was any seed at all was in the USDA seed bank. So that's the uh, United States Department of Agriculture. So this is how at least you were able to source yes. the remaining seeds. Yes, thankfully. To the, yeah, thankfully. There is a was seed bank. And there are smaller seed banks across the country as well. Um, but this one is uh, wonderful because if you're you know, a nonprofit or you're a research facility or you're a university, you can source from them, um, secure very small amounts of grain. They are about five ounces in a pack. Okay. A tiny, tiny little, barely a handful, just kind of fits in the palm of your hand is what they give you. And you can use that, put it in the ground, grow some more, use that again, replant it. We've been working on that for four years. And you're working with Penn State? Working with Penn State, yes, their agricultural extension program. And um, there is still in State College. And the gentleman I'm working directly with is Mark Antle right now. Um, they're, it's a wonderful group. They have um, extension locations across the state, but I'm specifically working with uh, Penn State right there in State College. They have these um, wonderful plots where they do experiments on growing different types of grain and supplemental income grains like the Rosen. And that's my nonprofit specifically giving them donations so that they can continue the program because it was almost shut down. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Wow. It, early on, um, when we got started in 2015, um, the interest wasn't necessarily there from the school's perspective, so I made sure to put a good influx of money in there to keep it going. And I'm so glad I did because, you know, now that we're coming to nearly four years of working on this project, we had enough grain last season, about 350 pounds of it, to give to a distillery so they can actually turn that into whiskey and we can see for the first time in decades what this stuff tastes like. So where's, so, so now there's a distillery? Yes. Which distillery is? That's Stolen Wolf. Okay. They're in Lidditz, Pennsylvania. And the reason I specifically wanted to work with this distillery is not only because one of the owners, Eric Stoll, really kind of helped plant the seed, <laughs> pun intended, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> um, to bring this back specifically for his distillery because Schaeferstown, which is where Michter's made the uh, Rosen Rye whiskey, 
just up the road from them. Okay. And so he was looking to reconnect with the heritage of his town and location. Um, he also brought in the last master distiller at Michter's to be his master distiller at the new distillery. So Dick Stoll, whose history is in Michter's in Pennsylvania, he was the last distiller to lock the doors in 1990 on Valentine's Day. Poor Michter's. <laughs> but uh, he was the last distiller to work there and finally came in to help Eric open up his distillery. They've I guess they're going on their fifth year now, I believe. It's a wonderful distillery. They have a beautiful new column still, and I'm so enthusiastic that the last man to distill Rosen Rye here in Pennsylvania will be the first, be the first one to, to do, do it, it again. again. So, yeah, it's, it's a thrill for me. I'm so excited to be working with them, and they're such wonderful people. It's a great little town and a great little distillery. So, Part of the conversations that I love having with people like yourself that impact and are now part of that craft distilling mm-hmm. industry, um, the impact that you're making, uh, not for towns in terms of tax revenue and uh, tourism, uh, the hospitality side of things, mm-hmm. but the impact of bringing back this ancient grain that at some point was extinct or not thought to be used anymore. Right. Now, the impact financially you're going to make in the agricultural industry. Yes. When farmers will see that this grain has the ability to have, have, have that financial again impact on them, they'll start growing it. Other right. distillers will want to have that. Well, that's the right? point. You have to show people. And one of the things about farmers that I've always loved, being a stubborn person myself, is they are a stubborn group. And you have the way that you've done things, and it's always worked, and why change? Don't fix it if it ain't broke. Right. Well, unfortunately, it is broke in a a lot of ways. And so these farmers need to start looking at different options. And the only thing that can change a stubborn mind is to see with their own eyes this is successful. And I have a number of farmers that I'm working with who are wildly successful and working with they started with smaller distilleries and now they're moving up and now they're working with much larger distilleries getting interest from Kentucky you know say people in Kentucky that are, they're making rye they want to see what's going they want to see the what's going on over there right. right and they also want to connect to heritage and Pennsylvania is is the home of rye whiskey rye whiskey is about 200 years older than bourbon so even though Kentucky has its roots in bourbon they're making a lot more rye now because of you know the interest that the public has in it and where do they want to get their rye from where rye came from West Overton is uh, the home of Old Overholt whiskey um, one of the only whiskeys that was still on the market and remained on the market throughout all of the um, ups and downs of the whiskey industry it's moved hands the ownership of the company has but uh, the original place where it was made by Abraham Overholt was West Overton Village which is in western Pennsylvania Um, and they have a museum there dedicated to the history of that whiskey and that distillery there. It hasn't functioned as a distillery for, again, decades. (laughs) Um, And they're reopening. They have a brand new still. They have, you know, historians working with them. They have a deep respect for the brand and and the history there. So the fact that they're reopening in a couple weeks is another Wow. <laughs> yeah, it kind of makes, you know, for me, it, it, it makes the hairs stand up on the back of my neck. And 
that's the passion that you bring that I hear in your voice mm-hmm. about sharing and talking about the history yes. of, of whiskey and distilled spirits in the state of Pennsylvania and the impact. Are there any other grains besides the rose and rye that are being discussed about trying to bring back? Well, specifically right now, I'm focused on rye. Right. So there are other varietals of rye. I'm actually going to go um, have a, a sit down with Mark Antle soon. I have to go visit my rose and make sure Good. it's doing well. Go visit your little, little, little baby. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And when I do visit um, and give him another check, I'm going to make sure we sit down and discuss uh, the new varietals that we want to work with because I know that he's interested in doing that and he has um, new people that he's bringing in that are also very interested in it and interested in what we're doing. So uh, I specifically like rye because of the uh, impact that it has on the environment and on the soil itself. So by encouraging farmers to grow rosin as opposed to the varietals of corn, which again, I love. Uh, There are lots of interesting corn varietals. One of the farmers specifically that I'm working with, Dancing Star Farms, um, he's wonderful. He grows lots of different varietals of corn, um, but I specifically like to focus on rye for its amazing environmental contributions. You know, one of of the things I hear you say is, what this is doing is a catalyst yes. for creating other opportunities. Mm-hmm. Corn, barley, mm-hmm. and even coming from the, the barley side of things, you know, do we have malting facilities that are opening up in Pennsylvania now? Yes, yes. And, and just rebuilding that whole industry mm-hmm. that the craft spirit side of things is now demanding, mm-hmm. and the breweries are now demanding, and, and just even reaching that next level of quality that we're going to be able to provide that, you know, where Pennsylvania was on that map as a capital, mm-hmm. the resurgence is there, and I know there are quite a few as we talk about different distilleries opening up and leading that way. Oh, yeah. yeah. This Saturday, I'm actually going to a, a small... Um, um, brewing malting get together where people will be sharing their experiences in the malting industry. So I get to sit down specifically, um, Alan, uh, from, uh, what is it? Double Eagle Malt, which is in Huntington. I want to say Huntington Valley, uh, very close to here. Wonderful guy. Um, he's expanding his business yearly. Um, the interest in this local malt is really booming and they're all, my people, you know, they they're not only interested in the distilling and brewing industry, but they're also interested in the farming and agricultural side of things because they deal with them directly. The maltsters actually kind of fill a role as a middleman in the same way that millers do. You have the farmer right. who has the grain and the distiller or the brewer that wants that grain, but there needs to be someone in the middle grinding it so that they can use it. <laughs> they need to malt it so that the brewers can use it and the distillers can use it for its enzymatic um, purposes in the fermentation of, you know, their their brew. Right. So, it's incredible. I mean, the... the I don't want to call them middlemen. That sounds kind of like derogatory, but they're, they're definitely a huge part of that chain of moving the grain from the farm to the shelves. We could talk about it all day. Yeah. And, and the impact as far as what industries are being spawned mm-hmm. from your work. Mm-hmm. So the rose and rye that you have, yes. when does that when is that gonna end up in a bottle? When are gonna people, well, when this will is people actually get a chance to try that rye? Largely why I wanted to speak with you about this because in less than four weeks, um, Stolen Wolf 
I actually made the delivery last September of the Rosen Rye. They had to have repairs done to their still, which is exciting because, you know, now it's exactly to the specs of Dick Stoll and all the things that he wants for his distillation process. Um, the still is back. Everything's ready to go. They're running some experimental runs on the still. And in a couple weeks, my Rosen that's been sitting there waiting patiently okay. will be fermented and distilled. So... I'm excited to do all the press releases and talk about all that, and it's it's coming up. So. so, what's the release potential release date to the public? Well, you do whiskey is one of those things right. that you really do need to <laughs> be patient with because, as exciting as it is to distill whiskey, um, largely making whiskey involves letting it sit in barrels. So it's going to probably age for at least two years before they consider releasing it. We will obviously be able to taste the white dog or the, the new make spirit, which comes right off the still, which is super exciting because that's basically potential. Yes. Uh, it's white spirit without any color um, when it comes off the still. So it it's kind of like the baby. You right. know, you have to wait for it to grow up, but you, you can see kind of in that child what potential it has to become whiskey. So I would think about two years from now, he'll probably have something with a bottle on it that'll have a little, you know, notation to the Delaware Valley Fields Foundation, which is exciting. So six years. Yes. From inception, taking the seeds mm -hmm. to Penn State. Yes. To Stolf, Stolen Wolf, mm -hmm. to the bottle. Right. That's patience. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, that's farming. Yeah. <laughs> that's, it's one of the things that I respect so much about farmers is their patience. I mean, putting a seed in the ground, watching it grow, it's like, again, it's like a child. Right. You know, you're, you're putting it in the ground. You have all this potential, and it all depends on so many things. Do you have a good season? Do you have, you know, what's the weather like? You know, the, We talked about all the rain absolutely. and the impact on rye it's right It's a now. huge impact, actually, the climate change is having. Um, one of the things that our Seed Spark campaign is doing, we're not just growing this rye. We're also considering what needs to be done to grow this rye, especially with the change in the environment. So it, the soil that this uh, heritage grain is growing in is not the same soil that it grew in 50 years ago. That's true. This is a different soil with different components and different um, things to give or take away. And, and I wonder how, if, if, if it's grown in different regions in, in Pennsylvania, how the water content, you know, where the farmers are drawing the water from, how would that impact that as well? Well, um, we don't really have to worry about... I, this part of the country is built for growing grain. Okay. Um, specifically, Pennsylvania does really well with rye because we have rocky clay soil. You can grow rye on the beach. I mean, rye is a wonderfully versatile plant. It's much easier to grow than, say, corn and um, other plants that require a lot more water and a lot more attention. Um, but most grain, all grain really, requires periods of dry at the end of its growing cycle so it can dry out and, you know, finish its you want to dry process. The, you want to dry out the grain. Yes, it yeah. needs to do all of the things that grain needs to do, and it requires certain weather conditions for that to happen. But because weather conditions are changing, this presents a new problem. One of the things that rye is facing now is problems with uh, rust and head scab and um, problems with um, fungus and things like that, um, molds. So that was never a problem with rye before. It's such a hardy plant. It was never a concern. Now, unfortunately, it is because of the amounts of rain that we're getting here that we never had before. So um, part of the SeedSpark campaign's job is to study this, figure out what needs to be done using modern techniques 
to improve the growing cycle. So what we've done is actually kind of stunted the growth of the rye. The Rosen rye grows to about eight feet tall. Wow. It's okay. a huge, tall, beautiful plant, but unfortunately, very tall, beautiful plants tend to fall over. Right. And you don't want that in grain. You want it to stand up and stay up so that it can do all the things that it needs to do. Um, and get that seed to dry out up on the stalk. The stalk falls over, it'll rot on the ground. So you need a good, strong stalk. So what we've done is stunted the growth, shortened the stem so that it has a bit more strength and won't be as likely to fall over, which will help in the future. It'll still have the quality of grain that you know the maltsters are looking for and the brewers and distillers are looking for but it'll be a shorter stock nobody needs to know that you know it's a little shorter than it used to be but it's it's the, <laughs> it's the thought process yes of how to take an ancient grain mm-hmm. and accommodate it for bring it into modern times to modern times right so that we you know you and what you're doing can grow it mm-hmm. provide it to those that want to use the product distillers mm-hmm. and and the like and give a quality product year after year after year yes. that they're going to be looking for because again Somebody that is now a farmer that mm-hmm. is now looking to say, I want to grow this. Yes. That's got to be their process for growing. Mm-hmm. Now it goes to the distiller. So you're again, it's a two, three year, stick it in the ground, put it in the ground, cultivate it, grow well, it. Well, especially when you start with such a small amount. Yeah. You really do have to cultivate it, grow it. Right. Um, enlarge the plots that you're growing on. Um, we had a few acres last year. We plan to have more this year and more in the future. Um, this past year, we lost about half our crop, so we only ended up with about 350 pounds of it, which is still a substantial amount when you're talking about the fact that it came from five ounces. But um, we did save about 50 pounds of it to go back into the ground. Okay. So it's already been replanted. It's growing. That's you know Those are the plants I'm going to go visit soon, and that grain will be available to farmers for free. We're just going to you know give it to people and say, here, please grow this on your property. Uh, and give them all of the information that we've learned in our three years of what needs to be done, um, what things need to be applied to the soil and to the plants themselves in order to let them do the best that they can in this new environment. And um, yeah, it's it's been incredibly educational. So you're crisscrossing the state. You're championing the agriculture side of things. Um, you're, A lot of driving, yes. Yes, you're promoting <laughs> the farmers. You're, mm-hmm. you're, 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 what, what, I, what resonates with me so much is the history that you're promoting and what you're bringing, the, the voice of the history and the regeneration and the reinvigoration of the whole industry itself. Mm-hmm. So you decided or say to yourself, we need to find a way to fund all of this. Yes. And the American Whiskey Convention is born. Yes. The last one was the fourth annual. Correct. The fifth annual is in plans. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. So let's talk about the response to the fourth annual. Talk yes. about that. Well, our event grows every year. And I mean, part of it has to do with the fact that the interest in whiskey is what it is. Um, I specifically am incredibly excited about this event in general, obviously, well, partly because it's my own and I'm the founder, but um, also because it's American, specifically American whiskey. So um, we are the largest of our kind in the country. It is only American whiskey. So it's rye, bourbons, uh, wheat whiskeys, all sorts of, you know, four grain, heritage grain, all sorts of whiskeys that are coming in from all over the country. It's not just local, though I do like to focus on local for education purposes and things, but it is countrywide. Distillers from all over the country come and, you know, show off their whiskeys and people love it. I mean, 
I'm personally excited about the American side of things because of you know our American spirit and our need to do things differently from everybody else so the products are all competing against one another and in doing so they're drawing more interest into these different grains right they you know everybody wants to be a bit different so a lot of distillers will come to me saying you know what can you get me that's different from other people and how can you help me find a specific style of rye that no one else has and it's Incredibly interesting. I mean, the amount of people that I get to meet, not only through the Delaware Valley Fields Foundation, but also through the American Whiskey Convention, people coming from all different walks of life with all different interests. I mean, last uh, this past year at the, the fourth annual in April, I was able to speak to a number of farmers that came. Uh, they wanted to meet the other farmers there, and they also wanted to meet the distillers themselves and talk to them about what they're looking for, because a lot of these farmers are interested in growing these heritage grains, but don't know where to start. Right. So this creates the opportunity for them to get to speak directly to the distillers and find out, what should I be growing? Um, what would you recommend I grow? And I'm also finding that one of the things that's really advantageous when you're growing rye is those that are in higher elevations throughout the state do much better. You have the drainage that works a lot better for the grain. So a lot of these farmers are saying, well, look, I've, I have rye. A lot of farmers lost their rye crop uh, okay. this past year, but a lot of them are saying, you know, I have rye, and the reason I have rye is because I'm up higher than everyone else. And the same thing, you know, grapes, different um, crops. It's, it's all, all the need terroir, different, exactly. and that's such an impact. Mm -hmm. So you get to meet farmers yep. that are not impacted the same way as others that mm -hmm. can now be sourced for these grains. Oh, yeah. And, and regionally speaking, may have a different flavor, different profile, different 100%. grain that they can grow. Yeah, look at a topical, topographical map of Pennsylvania and you'll see the difference in these different locations, the different counties. Um, I'm also a member of the Farm Bureau, so I get to talk to a lot of people from different counties and um, different regional directors who can kind of give me feedback on what their farmers are growing and what their farmers... Um, are beginning to appreciate um, and change. So it's been, again, very educational, <laughs> but it's interesting to see where certain crops are more successful. So the we just had the fourth annual convention. Yes. Any kind of feedback, any things that came out of that? I, I, and it sounds like the farmers got the chance to speak to other farmers and the distillers. Mm -hmm. what, what, other feedback, what other feedback did you have? Well, it was great. I mean... Everything, you have to understand the American Whiskey Convention obviously is mainly for people to come and taste all of these amazing whiskeys. There's over 250 styles of whiskey available at this convention and more coming in the future. But there are also local businesses where you can, you know, check out all of these different um, lifestyle uh, crafts and there's there also were people working with leather exactly. and, and flasks and copper. Everything and, related to the whiskey industry, right. you know. Right. Um, also, the food that was available. We have catered food, and that food was barbecue this year because barbecue pairs so well with whiskey, um, especially American whiskey. So you have uh, the pig roast that we put on with pigs that were raised here in Pennsylvania um, on spent grain okay. from distillation, you know, from stills, from I didn't know that. I didn't know if people knew that. that yeah. Really, really, you've got the farm to table, yeah, farm to table, one hundred percent. It was, and that's my farm background, my interest in everything. So, um, the event is basically a. The event was designed because it's what I want. Right. Um, if. If, if I went to an event, this is what for, I want. Yeah, right. right. This is your, hey, I want to obey 250, right. you know, my, my clothes. I don't even know how many people came. <laughs> I, were, it was wall It's about 1,000 people, yeah. 1,000 mm -hmm. people. 
and and it seemed like they were all there in the one spot at one time. They really. <laughs> um, so this is your backyard barbecue. A thousand people show up. This yes. is how you want to put on your a very classy event. barbecue. Oh, but yeah, yes, no, uh, <laughs> I, I mean that. the facility was just magnificent, and beautiful. This past year, we did have it at the uh, University of Pennsylvania's um, Anthropology and yes. uh, Archaeology Museum, and it's a gorgeous museum. Um, one of those gems in Philadelphia that's kind of set back, but still within the city limits. So it was not only a beautiful location, but the fact that it was anchored in archaeology is very interesting because uh, there's a lot of archaeology taking place in the whiskey industry right now. You have these dis- these distilleries that are all defunct and haven't been around since Prohibition that are being dug up and you know um, rebuilt and rebranded and you know money's being thrown behind it. So. Th- there's so much interesting things happening. We, I brought in an archaeologist from Kentucky to talk about a distillery that's been long gone, that's been you know reestablished because they found it in the bones of this old building. I mean, really, really Which interesting stuff. Which distillery was that? Oh, it's the um, Old Fire Copper okay. Distillery. Um, it's part of Buffalo Trace and it, OFC. Uh, and for those me- that don't know what OFC means? Old Fire Copper. Okay, just for um, the sure. entire process from uh, the fermentation to the final distillation and and, uh, barreling, it only ever sees copper. It never touches wood until it goes into the barrel. The entire process is in copper. So these new vats that they've, you know, found pieces of and rebuilt from scratch to match these originals from the 1800s are being done all because of the work of this gentleman who came to my event and did a discussion forum on it. It was phenomenal. It's not just discovering history. It's creating a living history. Mm Mm-hmm giving it a rebirth Mm -hmm. and sharing that to a whole generation that's never experienced what others may have experienced in the 1800s and that's just that's just overwhelmingly exciting oh yeah true Americana it's you know this connection to history that all Americans have whether it's to their town or their county or their state or whatever happens to be there's so much that I love to incorporate into the event to draw attention to all of that but ultimately the farming is the basis of all of it. So, you know, we talk about the whiskey and people come for the whiskey. But again, going back to my mother and her small farm, reaching the children, here I am reaching the adults, finding something that they're interested in and somehow teaching them about grain while they're at it. We so you to, can't leave without homage. knowing more. We need to pay homage to your mother's legacy. I know. <laughs> and how that's impacting uh-huh. the whiskey and what we are able to drink in our glasses in Pennsylvania. So mom definitely gets a, a plus. <laughs> There. Right, I have uh, to give her a pat on the back. Absolutely. I actually, I'm going to see her next <laughs> this Monday. Uh, she and I are going to go tour a mill, an antique mill here in Pennsylvania, so I can get a better idea of uh, that's, I believe, 18th century um, Stover Myers Mill. I'm really excited to see that. They only mill about four times a year, but it's a beautiful old antique mill, and I can't wait to see it. What does the fifth annual American Whiskey Convention look like? Can you give us a little sneak peek well, of what we can is, expect? Well, it is exciting. It's going to be a bit bigger than last year. We are trying a different venue as well. Um, I want to focus this coming year on the uh, transportation and canal systems that got whiskey from point A to point B. Um, so we're hopefully going to bring in an expert to talk to people about that, um, do some wonderful tastings. I'd love to involve uh, Jefferson's Ocean as one of the tastings as well because of its connection to the movement of whiskey on the rivers and on the ocean. So, um, I love that now these are becoming themes. I, everything with me Every, is a theme. Yeah. I love it. I do. <laughs> I love to have dovetails. I love to have connections. I love to, you know, the public to understand my perspective, where I'm coming from. And the only way you can do that is with a theme and with um, a constant circling back. Because 
that's what I'm doing with the seed program, you know, always circling back to what was important. And that's our farming community and our agricultural roots here in the state. So did you, are you able to share the location? Or is that still a secret? It's still something I'm working on. I do have it. Uh, I have the date secured and I do okay. have the location secured, but I don't have it all in so stone yet. So people will have to so check out the website. They will. And, and the you Facebook can page. go to the website. Uh, it's AmericanWhiskeyConvention.com and you can sign up for our mailing list and, you know, be the first people to find out. We always offer discounts to people that are on our mailing list. Uh, before the event takes place, before Christmas, actually, so you can get those gifts out to your friends. And it is amazing. Obviously, it's going to be bigger. Everyone that's been to the event before knows it gets bigger and better every year with more interest and, you know, more stories to tell and more interesting whiskeys to try. <laughs> I have to tell you, my experience, and this was my first one that I've gotten a chance to enjoy, mm -hmm. but it was not only the conversations with everybody that was invited there, um, the farmers, the distillers, but even the attendees and mm -hmm. the passion and the conversations and, oh, did you try this? And have you tried that? And what is your favorite? And, you know, what do you enjoy about it? It's everybody getting together mm -hmm. for this really common passion. Yes. And all the conversations were overflowing and with it energy. crosses boundaries yeah. um, you know the interest that the event itself kind of brings to people brings people in from all over all different walks of life lots of different people I mean you have to be over 21 but other than that <laughs> the diversity of our guests is everyone you can imagine uh, the thing that also kills me I mean being a woman myself and being told that you know oh, whiskey's a man's world that's absolutely nonsense it's wonderful to see all of my lady guests coming and trying and not things. only that you know women owned distilleries absolutely cropping up every single week mm -hmm. you know and, and leading that charge from another perspective of how they want to treat and create their own stamp on that craft distilling industry absolutely and the artistry involved and the science involved and you know the the history and the heritage there's so much about whiskey that is absolutely draws people from everywhere with all sorts of interests what other events are coming up as far as what the uh, Delaware Valley Fields Foundation is working on? Anything that the public can get invited to? Anything well, that they can attend? Well, one of the things that I do personally, I do a, a Halloween tour, <laughs> which is coming up that I'm planning for. I do tastings locally, um, all to educate about my seed program as well. But um, I don't have anything in stone now. I have a, a small tasting group called the Dram Devotees of Bucks County, which I organize small meetups for. Um, you know, throughout the year, once a month, we always get together uh, for cigars and whiskey <laughs> here in Bucks County. And we have the, the Halloween Ghost Tour, which is in New Hope, um, is great because I get to, again, put in my historic connections to these little towns and talk about these historic whiskeys from Pennsylvania. So that's fun. <laughs> That'll be up on my site soon. Okay. So we started from a seed. Yes. You're cultivating and doing what you're doing. Where would you like to see this in the next five to ten years? What what impact would you like to make? Oh, what impact don't I want to make? I, I mean, I'm working with... I, I know a, a young man who's making barrels in Philadelphia for the first time since, you know... That's been ringing early. in my head about Cooperage. Yes. And, and so, in the state of Pennsylvania... He's using Pennsylvania-raised wood. Okay. He's making barrels in a small warehouse in Philadelphia. There's so much that can come out of what I'm doing. He's always been a part of the American Whiskey Convention, makes a barrel for me every year, which is exciting. Um, he's actually on the, the website's homepage there's one of his barrels so 
Check that out on the website. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'd love to see more interaction of farmers coming out to the event, um, more people from across the state, more people from outside the Philadelphia area um, driving in specifically for this event to come and see what we're doing. Um, and they always say, you know, overnight successes take at least five years. So this is the fifth year. This is our fifth year. So well, we'll see what kind of success we have. Already, <laughs> it's not overnight, but mm-hmm. with the it's, with the amount of attendance and the um, excitement for the event, it's already a success, and it just keeps on building. So oh, yeah, and people don't. It's not just a one and done. People come every year. So they've you know we're there for our first year. We were at Citizens Bank Park and uh, have come back in our consecutive years. And the Simeon Foundation Museum with all those beautiful antique cars and they and run to they move. They don't just sit there, which is right. exciting when you go a chance to get to there to there too and see the cars. Oh yeah, it's an yeah. amazing museum. Those are yeah, every single one of them is turnkey. So that's cool. Unfortunately those mummies didn't move. No, the, no, no. And the... it's probably for the best that they didn't <laughs> <laughs> The museum is gorgeous though. I mean it's a beautiful museum. The gems, the yeah. amazing things. So you're sitting there sipping whiskey amongst these, you know, ancient Egyptian sculptures and beautiful um, relics from ancient China. It was just really gorgeous. I was thrilled with it. We've had a chance to talk for a little bit. Is there anything that uh, we, we I haven't touched on or asked you that you wanted to include and, and just share with people uh, about what's going on? Or um, I don't know. I mean, my interests are so diverse. My degree, actually, is in children's book illustration. So... <laughs> So will there be a children's book about whiskey and farming? There should be. There definitely should be. And I've looked into doing it quite a few times. I'm looking into um, possibly working on a book uh, on the history of Pennsylvania whiskey and the history of Pennsylvania and how those two are incredibly interwoven. Um, You know, you you think Pennsylvania history and you think, you know, Vanderbilt and... um, well, you think steel railroads, steel railroad, right. all those things—it's all intertwined. Right. Whiskey history. was a huge part of that. Uh, the railroads and all of those people with money—you you start looking into it, and you start realizing they owned distilleries, and large amount of the money that they made came from these distilleries. And it, it's amazing how much it's been whitewashed from our history. Even the fact that you know Michter's Distillery uh, was open until 1990, and you ask people where's Michter's Distillery, and they all tell you it's in Kentucky, but in truth, it was from here in Pennsylvania, and. The biggest roots in American history lie here in Pennsylvania, largely in ruin, <laughs> with these amazing, you know, it, ruins all long, over Pennsylvania. Not for long, no. based on what your crusade is. Oh, absolutely. Right. If I can keep up what I'm doing and we can bring back, you know, hundreds more. Because right now, in 10 years, we've gone from four distilleries to over 80. It's an exponential growth, and we're, we've got to be near 100 by now. I mean, the, the growth is just phenomenal. I I've visited about 45 of these distilleries so far myself, and I'm looking to see as many more as I can in the time that's given to me. So, <laughs> the, the goal is to try what everybody is producing mm-hmm. and have an opportunity to hear their story. Oh, yeah. And, and, and just enjoy the craft, mm-hmm. what they're doing. And the local history that's all tied yeah. to it. And it's really incredible. I mean, we talked about Lidditz and, yes. and the local history there and, mm-hmm. and just how that's being brought back. Just by putting a distillery and having a distillery in the community. Because people that, look, I mean, not that, I'm not speaking bad about Lidditz, I'm just saying right. that when you find out there's a distillery in the area, and this happens in many local communities. Mm-hmm. I mean, from where we are now in Newtown, um, I'm thinking off the top of my head, there's at least 12, easily maybe 15 within Probably an hour's drive. closer to 17. Drive. 
uh, yeah. an hour's drive Maybe from where 20. we are right mm-hmm. now. Distilleries. Yeah. So, you know, the, the impact that they're making on local communities, what Dad's Hat's making for Bristol, mm-hmm. um, the distilleries are down in Philadelphia, um, even as you go out to Lancaster, um, Thistlefinch. Yeah, mean, absolutely. They're... they're, they're putting a little bit of a pin in that community where people are actually venturing to that community and saying, wow, we've never had this before. Mm-hmm. And you bring an ancient grain back. Right. Introduce that to what they're But they doing. have had it before. And that's the thing that right. I'm trying to educate people about, that you have had a distillery around the corner from you. You had... Hundreds. Well, our forefathers <laughs> Thousands. did. Right? And people oh, did, yeah. People did home distilling. And, oh, yes. Because you know, it wake would, before up prohibition, cider. it was legal. Um, if you were a farmer, any of the excess grain that you had on the farm, you didn't want the mice to eat it. You didn't want it to rot. So what did you do? You distilled it. And that grain as whiskey was more valuable than the grain was itself. So you were actually creating you know, another opportunity for yourself to make money for your farm. So all of these, and it's funny that you brought up Lidditz because when I was there and, you know, visiting the distillery, I decided I was going to go to some of the antique shops. And as I stopped into one of the antique shops, I thought, you know, while I'm in Lidditz, there's got to be some old Michter stuff around. I'm looking for some antique barrel heads or something like that. And I brought it up with the woman who owned the shop and said, where are your whiskey antiques? And she goes, oh, no, we don't have whiskey around here. We're a Mennonite community. And I laughed and said, those were the people distilling. It was <laughs> right. the religious people who right. came over from, you know, Europe and uh, Eastern Europe, Russia, all these well, places. Well, it was their culture. It was their heritage. Anyone who right. was prosec- or persecuted right. in uh, Europe and Asia, they came here because they were looking for freedom from that persecution. While in their home countries, the one thing that persecuted people were allowed to do were things that other people didn't want to do. One of those things was brewing, distilling. That's a large part of why women were um, the brewers and distillers, because they were the ones that were persecuted, too. Like, you're not allowed to do that. So what did they do? They brewed and distilled. And that's how they made a living for their farms. So these people came See, here, and they history, already knew. That's a part of history that really needs to be told. Absolutely. That I really agree. is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, people need to hear that impact. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. While the men in the family and the community were out doing what they were doing, mm-hmm. the women were providing all those distilled spirits. Who do you think was milling the grain? Yeah. Who do you think was, oh yeah. It yeah. Was the, I mean, nobody thinks about mm-hmm. that because you put a male face, a patriarchal face on the distilling industry, right. but it was really a, a maternal yeah, uh, ask anybody in the Scotch industry. They'll yeah. tell you it was the Scottish women who were the ones that were protecting the, you know, their their men who were, you know, maybe doing the distilling, but they were the ones who were doing the, you know, most of the work in the kitchen and, you know, taking care of the farm itself. And they had just as much skin in the game as the men did. And it, the interesting stories that are there are too vast to get into, but it's, it's wonderful that, you know, our American history is so tied up in that our immigrant community that came here, the Scots-Irish, we have a very similar parallel history to to that that took place in Ireland and Scotland. Their distilling traditions are very much the same as our own. So when you raise a glass, mm-hmm. when you order your favorite cocktail, by the way, what what's your go-to cocktail? I mean, I know it's like having all these children, mm-hmm. but what's your go-to? Is, do you have a favorite that stands well, out? Or usually, what's your favorite right now? Oh, I... Honestly, don't know. It's usually a whiskey-forward cocktail, so an old-fashioned or okay. a Sazerac or something like that is usually my go-to. But, you know, they're uh, like most things, the tradition of how to make them properly is largely lost. <laughs> what? It's so being, it's, 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 it's coming it's, back? It's, it's, it's a resurgence. Oh, absolutely. I mean, these cocktail programs, especially mm-hmm. in the, the, the distilleries, are just second to none. Philadelphia's cocktail industry yeah. is 
booming and it's wonderful and the, the cocktail bars and the whiskey bars alone are worth a visit to Philadelphia. Absolutely. It's it's truly amazing. And the history of Philadelphia with distilling is vast and and crazy interesting too. If you're a farmer, mm-hmm. if you're somebody that is looking to learn more about grains, mm-hmm. again, how can they find you? How can they connect with you? Well, DelValFieldsFoundation.org is our website. You can go there to find information. My um, contact information is all there. Uh, you can also go to the American Whiskey Convention and go to one of our uh, contact forms. Um, that goes either directly to me or to one of my staff members who can reach out to me. So I'm always available to anyone who's interested in learning more or getting involved in any way. Um, I personally love speaking with people in the industry, people in the agricultural industry, people in farming, milling, malting, all the things we've talked about. There's lots of different people involved in making that bottle of whiskey that's on the shelf and it doesn't get there without all of those people you know you don't just have a distiller one day go you know i'm gonna open a distillery they also need to find their grain sources they have to find you know where am i gonna you know these brewers open up and go well i'm just gonna buy bags of grain i'm gonna order it on amazon like (laughs) where do you think it comes from so they have to do the research and they have to find out what's the best source for this so uh, you know dealing with the farm bureau directly trying to change the laws in pennsylvania to make things a little bit more easy on the farmers to try these new grains um looking at storage looking at um really everything involved with farming tax incentives to allow uh these distillers and the the farmers involved um to have interaction with one another and have it be incentivized you know that's key it's incentivized absolutely being being incentivized to grow the greens Mm -hmm. to provide them as as a marketplace yes for for others to to have access to right and to keep it local because you know um far too much grain that's used especially when you're making rye whiskey is ordered from canada or from germany or from sweden or from you know somewhere overseas not here in america um largely because again it's corn and soy that are being grown not rye grains so when people want to order rye and they want to order rye that tastes good you have to get it from elsewhere so when you have farmers that are growing it i want the distillers to make sure that they're buying it from that farmer so that that farmer's making money that distiller is growing or, or using local grain making a local product everybody talks about how Ameri- how amazing it is to have you know kentucky whiskey or pennsylvania whiskey but if you're not using grain from kentucky can you really call yourself a kentucky whiskey right yes it was distilled there but it's like any product that you're making, you want that product to be from that area. And yes, it was made by that craftsman, but what are the tools they're using? What's the, the raw materials that are being used? And is that coming from your local provider? And if it is, shouldn't that be incentivized? Shouldn't that be something that we all encourage? You are overly passionate. <laughs> yeah. you're, I mean, for an hour almost we've been talking, you're excited. Mm-hmm. Anytime I've had a conversation with you, there's been no lack of energy. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's, I think that's infectious. Blessing or a curse, I'm no, not sure. No, I, I think it's infectious. <laughs> I, I think people get to benefit from your, your passion about the industry, about the, the culture, the history, and everything you're doing. I am grateful for this uh, time that we've had. I, I know since the convention, I'm looking forward to spending time and sitting down and talking to you, and I'm, I'm, I'm 
sure there'll be more conversations. Yeah, it'd be great to talk to you again when the next event gets closer. I have more details that I can give to people yeah, about we'll, what's we'll happening. We'll have to create a new segment for Fermented Image <laughs> of the podcast, um, you know, sitting down with Laura Fields. Laura, thanks again so much it's for my this pleasure. time. Yep, and, and if there's anything that we can do um, and, and get out to uh, our, our, our community, we, we'd love to do that for you. That's great. Yeah, I mean, just sharing my websites and uh, sharing ways to contact me is very helpful. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you again for listening. Laura is graciously offering two tickets to the New Hope Specters and Spirits this coming October. Check out last year's festivities at spectersandspirits.com. To be entered, answer this question on the Fermented Adventure Instagram page. Tell us what type of rye is being brought back to life. We will choose one lucky winner. Good luck.